This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, time to talk about all things municipal. And there are lots of new decisions coming out of this week's Toronto City Council meeting. Those controversial bike lanes north of Bloor along Young Street are going to be permanent, despite objections from people in the neighborhood and the mayor's wish to take a closer look before setting this in stone or concrete. Whatever. It is part of the rest of the active TO program that is also now permanent. And another controversial decision not to keep those warming centers open uh, for the homeless 24 7 until the end of winter. There was also some good news for restaurateurs. Last week, when the Cafe TO program was made permanent, it was to come with a whack of fees that many found prohibitive. Well, now those fees have been reduced by two-thirds, at least for the first year. So what do you think? I suspect that uh, our listeners have something to say about the bike lanes for sure. 416 40 toll free 1 866 740 And now it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome Anna Bailau, a former Toronto City Councillor and Deputy Mayor, Councillor Stephen Holliday for Ward 2 Etobicoke Centre and Deputy Mayor of the West Area of the City, and Ben Spur, City Hall reporter for the Toronto Star. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Good afternoon for having me. Let us begin with Anna Bailau. So uh, the bike lanes controversy and, uh, you know, this this is one time where it didn't turn out exactly the way the mayor wanted. Well, well, I, I think the city has been uh, installing a significant amount of uh, bike lanes in order to create a network. The city is growing very fast. We know that we need to give alternatives to people to move around. Some, not everybody, but some people will be capable of moving by moving by bikes if they have a safe network to do, to do so. And so giving that opportunity for people to move around is what I, I believe the city is trying to do. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that is if you have a full network. Now, some of these are very controversial. I think that um, the idea that once they're installed and can't have any change, that's, that's not the reality of what happens. A lot of these bike lanes, even when they come in right away as permanent, they have to be adjusted. You know, there is community consultation usually at the beginning. And then through the process, as, as people and the community adjust to these things, they have to be adjusted because I think that, especially in this area, residents have expressed concerns and valid concerns that need to be taken into consideration and the bike lanes need to adapt to some of those things. But I think this completely us versus them and we shouldn't have it or not, like the reality is that we need different modes to move around. Not everybody can move on car. Not everybody can move on bike. Not everybody can move on GTC, but we need systems and networks in all these areas. Well, I think that uh, even people who agree with that uh, and when these, even when they went in said, you know, Really? Why, why Young Street? Why not, uh, on a parallel street that doesn't have as much traffic, that doesn't have as much business, uh, uh, and that doesn't have as much as a need for emergency vehicles? It was it, not so much the fact of them that people were upset about, I think, uh, but actually the location of them and, and the residents, uh, some of them say they've seen emergency vehicles held up. Uh, Stephen Holiday. Well, for sure they were held up. But, you know, the, the secret behind all of this is the politics. Libby, you know at council, I took a run at this and was critical. And I moved a motion to thank staff and end the pilot, but I, I was outvoted. And there was a lot of smiles around the council chamber because the theme of this council meeting seemed to me to be congestion. 
and it's as if some of my colleagues actually want to create congestion in the city. And I, I talked about that. I talked about us being, I think, seventh in the world. And, uh, you know, the facts are that council voted to fill in permanently two of the four lanes on Young Street. And it's, uh, the politics are as such, right? You see examples, King Street, Bloor Street. It's like the politicians are pulling up the drawbridges around downtown. And, you know, part of the story is you have to rely less on the car and take more transit. I agree with those ideas, but not everybody can. And that's the, the argument I left with council was, please think about the people that travel in and out of the city. They're part of the city too. They come to work. They come to access services. Maybe they go to school. They do what they do. But uh, they have to come in one way or another, and some of them have to drive. And making life harder for them doesn't necessarily make life better for the city overall. And I think there were a lot of residents in the area that would agree with this sentiment, that deliberately introducing congestion doesn't make the quality of life better. Well, it's, it's, it's not introducing congestion. If, if anything, it would be adding to it. Ben Spur, how do you see this fight? And is it, is it because of, uh, the breakdown of, of, uh, left versus center and right on this new council? Well, I do think that you've seen a bit of a change over the last, you know, decade or so at City Hall, um, where the idea of putting bike lanes uh, in on major streets was once, you know, just kind of toxic and, and not really uh, accepted widely at at, uh, at council. And you've seen a growing acceptance for that, where I, I think, yes, on some on the left, but even the, the mayor, um, you know, has, has been a proponent of bike lanes on other major streets, has supported the installation on, on Bloor, which was like a, a no-go, I think, uh, before he came into office. Um, and I think it's just a, a reflection of a changing attitudes um, at City Hall and I think across the city as well about, you know, what what the purpose of these main thoroughfares uh, should be. Um, you know, there, there are some, and I think the conventional thinking is that um, these major streets should just be uh, facilitating uh, the movement of car traffic as, as fast as possible with as few obstructions as possible. But you see with the bike lane vote and also the cafe dis- uh, TO decision this week, um, that there's a kind of counter argument to that that says, look, we need to all give uh, we people other ways to get around besides cars because uh, that will actually help reduce congestions if if people have alternatives to driving and also that streets should maybe not just be thoroughfares but be destinations right where it's where people can come sit on on a on a patio uh, and uh, and uh, enjoy a meal or a drink contribute economically to the area and and that that's a, a better use of that space than actually uh, just uh, letting cars drive through the neighborhood and, and maybe not contribute economically or socially to the area. So I, I think we are seeing definitely a, a sea change uh, about um, street use in Toronto right now. Again, Ben, um, for a lot of people, it's not it's not an objection to bike lanes. It's, it's these particular ones and uh, the uh, difficulties that that particular location might create. And uh, um, Anna Bailau said, well, uh, you know, there, there has been, I guess, some consultation but but the consultation did not result in in listening to the people who live there ben. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Maybe. can i oh sorry go ahead. Let, let ben go, go ahead, ahead go first ahead. and and yeah yeah go ahead ben yeah, yeah, I would just say the mayor was saying that he got about, um, you know, 700 emails opposed to the, the bike lanes on Yon and about 700 uh, that were uh, in favor of it. But certainly there are yeah, lots of people who, and particularly residents who live nearby who are um, complaining about it. But um, and uh, but I think the issue is you'd likely find that no matter where you, you put bike lanes, and I think um, uh, that's not to say that um, they, they shouldn't go in anywhere. I think I think the, what the mayor and, and others at council we're arguing with that um, we need to take more time to, to listen to, to residents, but um, it turns out at City Hall that uh, the other side won out on this vote. Hmm. Anna, you were saying? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, uh, Libby, it, it's, people are never against the bike lanes. It's always that specific one. It's, it's the same thing with housing. They're never against that, you know, housing in general. It's always that specific one. It, it seems to be a trend as well. And that's not to diminish some of the concerns that I've heard about this. There is things that need to be looked at. But I think Ben mentioned something that I think is really important to emphasize here. This is not about creating congestion. This is, we have a city that is going to be 
building has committed the province, it was mandated by the province to build another 280,000 uh, units of, of, of housing in here because we're going to have probably about a half, a half a million people coming to Toronto in the next year. Not everybody will be able, if we, if you, we only have people moving by car, you are going to get stuck in congestion. The only way to deal with it is for those that can to give them the opportunity to, in a safe way, to move around by TTC, by a cycling network, and the ones that can't. Absolutely, there's going to be people that are going to be, they're going to have to drive. And how can we make sure that all these systems move as quickly as possible and in a safe way? I think that's, that, that's the end goal in here. Stephen Holliday, uh, and uh, then there's the safety issue. I mean, we've had a bunch of safety issues recently on the TTC that I think are putting some people off of it. Um, but, you know, w- what do you say to that? I mean, I know there are, and we talk to them frequently, cycling advocates. So I'm assuming that in, in that 700 were probably uh, quite a few people who don't necessarily live in that neighborhood. Oh, you know, it. it the politics of this is uh, quite poignant, and many of the advocacy groups are quite organized, and they approach it. Some of the advocates come from a you know a pro-cycling. Some of them come from an anti-car. And, you know, I hate to say anti-car, but it's a view of the world that the future, their future holds, you know, no car, and everybody walks everywhere and takes their bike everywhere. I just think uh, if you look beyond, you know, the Humber River or Eglinton Avenue or Vic Park in the city, you realize there's a whole lot more to our city and our GTA region. The fear I have, and I, I alluded to this in what I said at council, was if you make this city so unattractive to get to, and so difficult to get to, people will begin to think about going somewhere else. And they will shop somewhere else. They will dine somewhere else. I mean, I think that tide has already turned. And what do we have in our downtown right now? We're struggling to see it reemerge from a pandemic where people aren't going into the office and populating the bars and restaurants and shops like they used to. So how do you manage an economic recovery when Every day of the week, in almost every hour of the day, you hit some kind of congestion on either the highway that you're coming in or on one of the main streets that you're coming in, and people are frustrated. And so, you know, I want people to feel connected to downtown city of Toronto. I want people in Etobicoke, where I represent the community here that I live in, to feel that downtown is part of our city. And it just feels like it's slipping away. And council are the architects of this change. Let's take a call from Joan in Niagara. Hi, Joan. Hi. Say, if uh, cyclists are going to use our roads, why are they not subject to the same rules as a motorist? They should be licensed, and they should be ticketed for not obeying the signs. Okay, Joan, I know a lot of people like that uh, who feel like that, uh, and uh, I guess I would say, that ship has sailed. <laughs> and uh, cyclists used to be licensed a long time ago, but uh, it's not, I guess, considered a very practical thing. Um, moving along here, there was another very controversial decision at council yesterday, and that is, <clears throat> excuse me, not to keep the warming centers open 24-7 until the end of the winter for homeless people and my understanding is uh, that was motivated partly because there isn't enough staff to keep them open in that matter, Anna. Well, I I, I think it, it it's the staff, but it's also the um, the idea that that's going to be the answer. And and I think um, you know uh, it, it's unthinkable to leave people you know with minus thirty and that this this with some some of the bad weather conditions outside, absolutely. But the reality is that warming centers have proven to be more expensive, and even shelters are now being used as de facto housing. And that is the biggest problem that we have, is that we have, we have basically three kinds of population in our shelter system. We have people that, you know, had some economic uh, really tough time and end up in a shelter, and, you know, very easily they can... You know, a few after a few months, move into it, move into into housing. We have about one third that is refugees, and one third that have serious um, mental health 
uh, addiction issues that need a lot more than just a roof over their head. And unfortunately, two situations are happening. We're not getting the supports that 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 we need as a city to get uh, uh, refugees settled properly and not ending up in our shelters, and they sh- that shouldn't be happening. And then the shelter system is actually uh, acting as a de facto housing, and people that should be in supportive housing end up in our shelter system sometimes for years and in our streets for years because they don't have the mental health supports, addiction supports. And so what is happening is solutions start bringing, you know, it was the respite centers. It was centers that was going to be, you know, and then they end up being permanent. And, and then you go from actually having supportive housing to having shelters. To, to now you open respite centers, and now respite centers are open all the time, and then warming centers with people just have, like, a cot and a chair. Like, that is not the system we want to create. We want to create a shelter that actually acts as a shelter and have proper supportive housing and proper housing. Understanding the urgency of the issue, but I think that council was very, very concerned into going down the path that here we go, we're going to create this permanent thing yet again, and not dealing with the issue in the most humane and economical way possible, which is actually build the supportive housing, which we've shown in the city that we can do very quickly with some of the modular housing projects that we've done in the city by using the federal uh, funds and the land of the city and by creating uh, the housing that, that needs to happen in the city. Stephen Holiday, was this the right decision? Well, as sure as the seasons change, there is a debate on shelters every winter at council. And, you know, part of this is advocates that have a certain view of how they think the system should be. And that includes certain councillors, as uh, as my, my friend uh, Anna said, that go straight to a solution. The facts are that the Toronto Public Service uh, deeply care about having a sustainable and workable shelter system, and they can open the warming centres as they need to. Um, but that, that, uh, that fact was cast aside and people went straight to this idea that we're going to order them to keep them open every day as if it was going to solve the situation. I saw this as an undermining of the discretion of the people that run the systems. I think they open them when they think that they need them. They try to maximize the resource and look after as many people as they can. And that was the difficult discussion we had at council. Ultimately, the staff still have the authority to open them up as they need to. And uh, and that still exists today. And council made the decision to put their faith really in the staff and to, to say to the other governments, hey, you need to help us out. This is a complex situation where there's 9,000 people in the shelters in Toronto. And, and some of them are going to be people that you see visibly on the street, but there are many more that are within the system, and there are many more that are on track to find permanent housing one day. Uh, ben Spur, was this a matter of, uh, of uh, some advocates, you know, uh, uh, figuring out how to, uh, you know, uh, seize the media attention and, and get their point of view out there and circumvent, uh, what I guess the professional opinion was. Well, this, this motion came from, from city councillors and went through the Board of Health. Um, so I think there is genuine concern from some uh, members uh, at council that the current system is, is not working. And I, I think um, a lot of residents would, would agree with that. Um, you know, you, we're hearing from um, ERs in the city that uh, people without homes are, are showing up to take shelter in ERs, which is not a sustainable situation. Um, and uh, we know that that's also happening on transit. People are, are taking shelter on transit because because they don't feel that there are other places to go. So I think um, there is a, a concern that what's happening now is, is not working and that uh, solutions of permanent housing, while the city is working on, on that, um, you know, are not coming immediately this, this winter when people are still going to have to be outside. Um, and I, I think that what does concern a, a lot of people, that my colleague um, Ed Keenan wrote a, a column in the Star today um, about, um, you know, there was concerns raised by uh, Summit City Hall that um, there was not enough uh, Funding to do this, uh, not enough staff uh, to to open up these uh, warming centers uh, full time, and and 
yet the city does seem to find money for other causes when it, when it needs to on, on short notice. We've seen the city uh, invest uh, $1.7 million a month in uh, deploying uh, police officers on the TTC. Um, that wasn't originally in the budget, but, uh, it, you know, the council snapped to attention and um, are supporting that and uh, with the mayor's uh, backing as well. Um, and we're funding things like uh, a, you know, bid for the for the World Cup that uh, is not uh, fully supported by the other levels of government, so we're not quite sure how that's going to turn out. We're spending millions on issues like that, but um, when it comes to finding $400,000 a month to open up a warming center, um, that, that raises some concerns at City Hall. So I think, uh, you know, advocates for the homeless find that uh, hard to square. Mm, and, and again, so maybe, I, I wonder can, if, I, if they even have, if you're keeping all of them open, if if there's staff for that, there's staff shortages everywhere and in every aspect. And I don't imagine that working in those warming centers is the easiest job in the world. Anna? Libby, I, I just want to say that I, I have never seen it this bad. And and as, as, as you know, I've done always a lot of work around uh, yes. affordable housing issues and, and it's it, it it is bad. Uh, there is, uh, I think, um, an urgency that needs to happen around these issues. Like the other orders of government do have to come through. The city does need to, to come through. I think there's a human side to, to ensure that while we are working on all these um, solutions, that we we keep people, you know, safe and warm and and you know, uh, with minimum uh, conditions. Um, but I I do recognize the concern of my colleagues because we've seen these over the last few years every year like the i remember the system being less than seven thousand beds and they're now at nine thousand beds and the city keeps stepping in to actually things that we should be having the assistance of the other levels of government like housing refugees properly like creating supportive housing and over the last few years all that's been happening is the city doing more and more of what it is the most, it's the worst solution. It's the worst solution for the person, because obviously you would much rather have the people housed than in a shelter, and it's a lot more costly. I mean, it costs somebody in the supportive housing about $2,000 a month versus, you know, in the system as it is today, 6000 in a shelter. So, wow. But what's been happening is that We've been increasing the number of shelter beds because the situation is getting worse and not getting the support. So I think that when this goes to council again, a lot of the people that have been there through these discussions year over year are concerned about that. I, I don't think that anybody thinks that, you know, that this is, this is, it's really tough and we need to, to, um, find the way to, to keep these people safe and warm as, as these things happen. But I think that um, more urgency and pressure needs to happen on the other orders of government as well to create the solutions that need to happen. Um, and, and, you know, I, 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 I would really hope that the city and the advocates really focus on that. We, I think the city really tried to do that during the pandemic. There was a huge focus on creating that supportive housing. So it would be like a legacy. And it feels like it's kind of like it's happening, but it's, it, it's slowed down. It's died down. I think there's a big crisis out there that needs everybody's attention and energy. Um, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, and, uh, you know, I want to uh, jump on to something that everybody has underlined, and that is this whole issue. It's other levels of government. Uh, and uh, there are, uh, you know, the, the only uh, suggestion, the new revenue tool about the parking levy on commercial properties. I mean, at the end of the day, it seems like every single thing comes down to uh, the city saying, you know, we need more money from another level of government and um, going cap in hand. Stephen Holiday, I mean, what about that aspect of it? And is this uh, a commercial levy on parking? Uh, you know, is it is it something that that might alleviate the need for that? Well, uh, very quickly in the commercial levy, um, it's been proven in a 2016 report to council that uh, a parking levy could have economic consequences and can be very expensive to to uh, take in the money. And, you know, there's not a strong case to do it from a business perspective. But the discussion around council opened the door to other tools and other ideas. And I, I think that's where this is going. I mean, I, I predict we'll get a report back to council that says, just like it did before in 2016, you know, no recommendation to go forward 
on a on a parking levy. And so, council, you need to think about other stuff. You need to work with the province to go create things like an income tax in the city or a sales tax in the city. And boy, are we really in for a discussion. But my criticism of council is is that is about the the jurisdiction between other governments and just on this this issue of of homelessness. You know. It's really hard to try to turn to ta- to property taxpayers and say, you know, you're going to have to try to house all of these people. It's really expensive to do and run a city at the same time. So council has to continue, continue asks itself, is this our responsibility to do? Sometimes councillors say, well, it's not our responsibility, but we're going to do it anyway. And that's, uh, that's when council starts writing checks it can't cash. And then we're stuck We've got to go to other types of ways of bringing more money in rather than just the property tax. And there's a lot of reasons to be critical about that approach. Um, Ben, I mean, is is that a discussion or is that going to come down to a kind of stalemate um, right-left as with other things? That's possible, but what struck me as really interesting this week was that the mayor explicitly said that um, this motion that he put forward for a review of, of revenue tools at the city was uh, is sort of leverage in his discussions with the other levels of government because he's asking the, the feds and the uh, province for um, more than a billion dollars to, to help plug uh, holes in the city budget. And uh, he said that when he goes and has those conversations with the governments, they say, well, you have these tools that the city can use to raise revenue that you're not making use of. So why don't you use those before you come to us and uh, and asking for more money? So, you know, I think it it would be interesting to see, you know, whether or not the mayor goes out and, and, you know, really stands behind one of these uh, uh, revenue tool options. He's he's kind of indicated that he's particularly interested in a parking tax, Um, but but also, you know, how much of this is is a kind of um, exercise in showing the other levels of government that, you know, the city's taking seriously its, um, you know, responsibility to, to keep its own house in, in good financial order and it's it's explored all the options and, and then if they get a report back saying none of these are really feasible, presumably the mayor would have more leverage when he goes to the other levels of government and says, we really need your help. Mm-hmm. All the politics of it, I hope uh, they remember that at the end of the day there is one taxpayer. I'm looking at the clock. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Stephen Holiday, Ben Spur, and Anna Bailau. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Okay, we are taking a break. And when we come back, uh, by American, that was the key message in Joe Biden's State of the Union address. Is that really bad news for Canada, uh, the U.S.'s largest trading partner? Uh, Is it a bit of bluster? We'll look into that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome uh, back. Now, one of the signature promises of U.S. President Joe Biden's Tuesday night State of the Union address was a pledge to double down on his administration's policy to buy American. The category of construction materials includes lumber, which represents $8 billion a year in cross-border trade, more than a quarter of a billion dollars of Canadian asphalt, per year, with Canada importing a similar amount from the U.S. and steel. That trade is worth about $17 billion a year. So is this pledge dis- destined to become a disaster for Canada, or is it just a lot of talk because of the impracticality and the drawbacks for Americans as well as Canadians? So the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm now joined by Edward Alden, the Bernard Schwartz Senior Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, specializing in U.S. economic competitiveness, trade, and immigration policy, and Mark Froze, professor of political science and founding director of the International Studies Program at Berman University in Alberta, Canada. Hi, thanks for joining us. Hi. Great to be with you, Libby. Okay, let us uh, start south of the border, Edward Alden. Um, How much of this uh, would you say is is rhetoric, or is this really going to become uh, the law of the land? 
I, yeah, just, I mean, to be clear, it has been the law of the land in the United States since the 1930s. So there are long-standing by American provisions for federal government contracts and for state-level government contracts. They've been enforced with, you know, sort of different levels of intensity. And what President Biden is making clear is that he intends to enforce by American laws with a, a, uh, a particular level of intensity. But this is a perennial issue between the United States and Canada. This is one that's been fought over many times before, you know, like softwood lumber, dairy, or some of the other issues. So this is nothing new for Canada. It's a challenge that uh, recurs uh, with, with, with uh, a fair bit of regularity. Uh, Dr. Froze, do you agree this is nothing new for Canada? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, for as far as that goes, it absolutely isn't anything new for us. I think what is new is that we have a sort of bipartisan consensus we've seen in both the Trump administration and the Biden administration that uh, free trade is not a winning vote-getter anymore. And as a result, uh, presidents, in wanting to reach across the aisle like Biden is, are looking to double down onto a kind of America first or buy American kind of rhetoric. So what's the danger of that for Canada? On one level, you could argue it's nothing new, which is, I mean, I, I agree with that as far as it goes. This has always been a thing that Canada's had to, had to deal with, and we've dealt with it quite well. On the other hand, because it is a new conventional wisdom, it's going to mean Canada's going to have to work hard all the time. We're going to have to be on point consistently with opposing these things and that's probably going to mean Canada is going to have to play a lot more of that sort of transactional political game that happens in Ottawa and in Washington, perhaps even more in Washington, in which we have to decide what we can give the Americans to get into, you know, fortress North, fortress economic North America. That might mean, you know, being on side on China and that kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm wondering about the cost of this in dollars and cents. I mean, it's been pointed out many times that it's not necessarily fabulous for Americans because it raises the price of the goods and it's not necessarily practical. I mean, even if you look at something like transportation, uh, when it comes to steel or anything else, uh, it can be a lot uh, closer to get it across the border than at some far-flung place in your own country. Uh, is, is that, um, is, is that an argument that holds sway, Edward Alden? Yeah, I mean, yes, sometimes absolutely. I think that was part of what happened, uh, during the financial crisis when, uh, the Obama administration, you know, funneled a lot of money into the economy with similar by American provisions. And, you know, Mark talked about the, the transactional politics in Washington. The Canadian government's very good at that. It's not a coincidence that the Canadian embassy is a stone's throw away from the U.S. Congress. And so the Canadian government managed to negotiate a variety of exceptions. And part of that is you have a lot of American construction uh, infrastructure firms that rely on Canadian inputs. So for them, the, the, the Buy America provisions can be difficult uh, to adhere to. You know, we have very integrated North American supply chains, so, so this comes up. But to be clear, you know, sometimes um, the U.S. government is willing to do things that hurt American consumers. I mean, there are significant tariffs right now on softwood lumber imports. Those are driving up the price of home construction here in the United States at a time when inflation is generally a problem. So sometimes U.S. governments will do things that hurt American consumers and hurt Canada. So that alone doesn't always give Canada a pass. Hmm. Um, and uh, in terms of a timeline, so first of all, uh, there's a lot of debate about whether or not we're heading into a recession. Is this something that could deepen a recession? Is this, uh, you know, what about the timing of this? Because it does look to be, you know, mostly about uh, the next American election. I think we'd have to find out sort of how it actually plays out, right? We'd have to actually see what uh, what comes of it, because sometimes uh, these sorts of pronouncements will have relatively quick um, impacts, and sometimes Canada negotiates some kind of exception, or even the industry itself that's coming under pressure uh, starts to lobby. I mean, I think this is a, a very good point. 
that these industries are deeply integrated across both borders. And, you know, for example, tariffs on softwood lumber in Canada for Canada also hurt uh, American producers who are producing on both sides of the border and want to ship that lumber to, you know, build houses someplace else in the U.S. So we can't say for sure if it's going to make a recession worse. But I guess we could say it's it's not helpful. <laughs> it would be wonderful if we had, you know, some kind of consensus with the U.S. that uh, stuff that comes from Canada is not a danger to the American economy or a danger to American producers or threatens American jobs. That would be fantastic. I'm I'm wondering. Could I, could I just please? Could I just add quickly? I mean, one one reason I think economically this round is a bit more significant is we're talking about a lot of money here. I mean, the U.S. Mm-hmm. infrastructure bill is the largest public works expenditure since the building of the interstate highways in the Eisenhower administration in the 1950s. And then there's a lot of other smaller pots of money through the Inflation Reduction Act. So there is there is a lot at stake here. Not enough, I think, to. To, to drive the Canadian economy into a recession, but there are a lot of business opportunities for Canadian companies that are going to be lost under a very strict interpretation of Buy America. So, so there are real dollars at stake here. Uh, mm-hmm. When 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 you say a lot of business opportunities that will be lost, I, I was curious just to uh, wrap things up in terms of enforcement. How is that going to work? Well, I mean, you have. You know, I mean, Biden was pretty clear in the State of Union speech that, you know, that that he wants sort of every grain of sand in these construction projects to be American in origin. And these are government contracts that companies are applying for, and they will be expected to demonstrate to whichever government entity is doing the purchasing, be it the, you know, the Federal Department of Transportation or, you know, state level entities that um that those companies are adhering to the buy america rule so this is this is certainly enforceable i mean there's a long history in uh in doing it so there's no question the u.s government can do this if it wishes to um mark froze what's the bottom line for canada aside from uh sharpening our pencils i guess and and uh having to lobby more well i mean (laughs) that is the bottom line for canada right it's going to be a, a diplomatic full court press on an issue by issue basis. It's going to mean staying on top of these things and uh, making sure to make our case constantly in Washington. It's going to mean working closely with those border governors on matters of mutual concern. It's going to mean perhaps championing the lobbying efforts of certain businesses. Because, of course, remember, American businesses have to bid for these contracts. And bidding for the contract means you have to have a competitive price. And having a competitive price might mean having some Canadian inputs. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, uh, another sort of fr- frontier for us. And I mean, at the very end of it, there could also be, uh, ways to challenge this at the CUSMA or at the USMCA. Uh, we could, that's right. Uh, depending on which side of the border you're on, it's a different acronym, right? Um, uh, too bad we just couldn't call it NAFTA 2.0 and I'll be on the same page. Well, but it, yes. Isn't <laughs> that a, isn't that a very long drawn out process too? Exactly, exactly. That's why I think it's kind of a, a last ditch attempt. I mean, it can work. You know, we won a big, a big win on auto rules of origin a few weeks ago. But at the same time, that's long. It's process, it's expensive. It's drawn out. There's no guarantee of prompt, um, uh, uh, commitments once it's even done on the part of the, of the country that, that, you know, quote unquote loses the case. So I don't, I don't think that you know, an easy solution either. I think it's going to require us having a government in Ottawa that is committed to making sure they break through the static and make their case constantly to Congress. I think that, and to the administration, I think that's what's going to be required. And we have to be very careful about who we choose, you know, to be um, our government in the next few years, because they're going to have to make significant commitment to defending Canadian interests consistently in, in, in Washington. Uh- Edward Alden. Let me just add, USMCA is not much protection here. The rules there are very weak. Basically, the rules that Canada will rely on are World Trade Organization rules on government procurement, which are really not all that good. So Canada doesn't have a lot of leverage here through the uh, through the trade agreements. I'm afraid. And and yeah. he, sorry, Edward. How would you how would you rate? Canada, uh, you know, and how how are we doing now? I mean, I know Christian Freeland has gotten some good reviews on this. I mean, would you say that our efforts in this vein are good enough? 
They're, they're pretty good. I have to declare a conflict of interest. Christian Freeland used to be my boss back when I worked for the Financial Times. So if I say something nice about her, you have to discount it. But okay. if you go back and look at the Canadian pressure over the issue of electric vehicles, so in early versions of the American Build Back Better Act, which later became the Inflation Reduction Act, there were Buy American provisions in there for the tax credits that would have excluded Canadian automakers. And she wrote the angriest letter I have ever seen from a senior Canadian official to U.S. members of Congress in the administration, basically saying, you know, we would declare the economic equivalent of nuclear war. We being Canada would declare the economic equivalent of nuclear war on the United States if this went ahead. And in the final version, Canada and Mexico are both included. The Europeans are on the outside. The Koreans are on the outside. The Japanese are on the outside. They're pretty upset about this. So Canada's lobbying efforts have been impressively effective so far. Um, but Mark's point about the political stakes here are real, right? For Biden, this is about winning Wisconsin and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And depending on the administration's judgment about how important it is to be standing very firm on Buy American, Canada isn't going to win all these battles. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, this is uh, Biden's a savvy politician. He kind of sees which way the wind is blowing, right? Um, historically, he's been sort of resolutely for whatever is the conventional wisdom of the moment, which is not a bad thing to say about a politician. He he has his own values. He stands firm for things he believes. And at the same time, he knows that it sometimes can't buck, you know, a, a, an eerie and an, an unmovable trend. And he knows that this is going to be really important to win those swing states. Hmm. Um, so uh, I guess uh, the people who are saying this could be bad news for us, uh, they weren't making it up then, right? I mean, well, the American I, yes. stuff is always is always bad news for Canada. And, and you know, we, we were joking about the acronym, but Canada and Mexico, for that matter, are much better off when we have uh, a North American economic agreement. And the new agreement is more nationalistic in different ways, and it reflects the the tenor of the moment, which I think Mark described extremely well. And this is this is challenging. For Canada, I remember Canada sends three quarters of its exports to the United States. So the you know whatever protectionist measures are coming out of Washington, and there are plenty of them these days, uh, impact uh, Canada disproportionately. Okay, it's time to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Edward Alden and Dr. Mark Froze. Appreciate your time. Bye bye. Thank you. Good okay. to be with you. Okay, we are taking another break. And when we come back, we've been hearing a lot about a consulting company called McKinsey lately. Uh, and uh, the eye-popping amount of money that they've been making on federal consulting contracts. We'll be talking to Melissa Lansman about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have been hearing a lot about the consulting firm McKinsey in the last while. It has received more than $100 million in government contracts over the last seven years, and that is a lot more than the firm received when former Prime Minister Stephen Harper was in office. Now, the public service seems to have been relying more and more on outside advisors, and it raises questions of why well-paid civil servants can't handle files like immigration. And eyebrows have also been raised about the company's past ties to Dominic Barton, the firm's former global managing director, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's former ambassador to China. And that's also been a source of controversy. So uh, what do you think uh, about spending all this money for outside consultants when uh, we do seem to have a large civil servants? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Melissa Lansman, Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and MP for Thornhill. Hi, Melissa. Hey, it's good to be back. Ah, thanks for coming back. So uh, this number seems to be very large. This number is eye-popping. And uh, we actually don't know what the number is. We've asked a number of times. And so we know that it's at least, uh, you know, it's at least $100 million. 
but we started this conversation. It was 20 million and then it was 50 million and then it was 66 million and now it's a hundred million. So I'm not sure what it'll be next week, but it is an eye popping number. Uh, not only for government contracts that have been given to this one firm, but after the public service has grown by 30%. So we actually have a larger well-paid public service. Uh, who, uh, who, who, is, who is capable of that work and who they themselves said they're not sure what McKinsey delivered. And then we have this bloating in, uh, in outside consultants at a time where people are really struggling. Now, what do you think is behind this? Is it an unwillingness on the part of the public service to uh, advocate perhaps tough decisions? I mean, McKinsey is very well known around the world, and uh, they're kind of the people that are often called in if you have to slash your workforce or do a bunch of unpleasant things. Is, is that part of it, or uh, is it a question of, I don't know, pandemic problem with our systems? I mean, you know, beyond any kind of, you know, political whatever, I mean, what do you think is behind it? Well, we've raised a lot of questions between the relationship of this character, Dominic Barton, that you spoke about, uh, who is a managing partner at uh, McKinsey, and and of course, the the, the prime minister's inner circle. So, you know, part of this is a a real conversation about the capacity of the public service to to do the work, the trust in the public service. Never have we seen Canadians get such a low level of customer service for things like passports and things like immigration and EI. Um, you know, power be with you if you if you need any of those things uh, in in short order because you're not going to get them. And we've seen many stories of that. Uh, and then part of this is at a, at the time where you know Canadians are struggling, they're struggling to to buy groceries and put gas in their car and certainly with housing and, and rent that has uh, has doubled in, in the highest inflation that we've, we've seen in 40 years and the highest interest rates in a generation uh, that are putting people under. This is, you know, this is a, a group of, of the prime minister's friends who are benefiting from government contracts uh, at a time where everybody else is, is asking, hey, what the heck? Things are not good here. Uh, and why are these people making $1,500 an hour when the service level that I get is at the lowest that anybody can remember. So again, we've got a lot of questions. The prime minister's response has been, uh, you know, has been one that's frankly not acceptable. He said that the appropriate response to the waste and corruption, the way that we see this uh, as the opposition, is to have the ministers responsible for that waste and corruption to investigate themselves. So there is no resolution to this, and and we're demanding just a better level of transparency and accountability on on why these contracts took place, who got them, why they got them, and why we even need them in the first place. Uh, again, I, I want to get back to the whole question of a culture. So my understanding is that uh, there's been an ever-increased reliance on consultants, uh, even though, as you say, this particular number is eye-popping and it's it's more than happened under uh, the previous conservative government, but it was happening. And you're pointing out, I mean, that all those problems, and we've just been told that the passport situation is fixed, uh, has apparently been fixed by f- hiring more people. I know that there are issues when people work from home with, you know, whatever their software is. But what is it that I guess makes the civil service unwilling to come up with this stuff itself? Well, I'm not sure that they are unwilling. Uh, you know, this is this is this is not an attack on the, on the public service. They they are very willing. They are the ones who said uh, it, about the McKinsey contract that they're not even sure you know, what they got for, for, for all of that money. The public service has grown. So every time we, you know, we have a problem, we tend to hire more people. Uh, and it's, and it's, and it's grown by 30% since, you know, for the last eight years of this government, uh, of this prime minister's, uh, 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 you know, spot in that seat. So this is, you know, this is a question certainly of, uh, of whether ministers are competent enough to direct the public service to, to offer Canadians the most basic service. Like, this is not, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, this is not the sexy work of government, getting a passport, getting, a, getting, a, uh, getting EI, uh, uh, getting, getting to see somebody in the EI office, getting permanent residency, uh, um, immigration, 
everything seems broken and everything seems backlogged. And the answer isn't consultants, uh, particularly in the case of McKinsey, who, by the way, has a long history of just morally bankrupt behavior. They are they are um, they are a company that has worked for Purdue Pharma for 15 years. They have been sued in many other countries. This company has been found guilty of mislabeling and misbranding things like OxyContin in a way that contributed to the opioid crisis. So it's not just about the capacity of the public service. It's about a government who has rewarded their friends uh, and, and, and their friends who are part of a company that has really destroyed some of the fabric of our society. Another question, Melissa, and of course, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, your view, but um, do you see this in any way as a result? We know that the Trudeau government is very centralized, uh, that a lot of it is directed out of the prime minister's office, that a lot of the ministers actually don't really have a lot of power. Do you see this partly possibly as a function of that? Yeah, look, I, I, I absolutely do. Uh, I see the, I see the situation in a similar way that, uh, that you do. And you can't run everything out of one central office. And, you know, we, we deserve as Canadians, we deserve answers certainly about these contracts, not simply how much money was spent, uh, but exactly how that money was spent and what value we got from that money spent. But we also deserve competent ministers who are willing to do the hard work of, of running a department and getting Canadians what they need when they need it in a timely fashion. Uh, that's, you know, all, all of that is, is, is wrapped up in, in this issue of, uh, of using consultants and frankly, uh, bloating our, our, our debt to the highest levels, uh, that we've ever seen with the lowest results for everyday Canadians. So you would like the Auditor General to investigate this? What else? We, you know, we did. We did uh, bring forward a motion to uh, to the House, and it turns out that uh, all of the MPs uh, voted uh, for it. So the Auditor General will will look into this uh, again for those answers of of how much money, where the money was spent, and what we got for uh, for the money. And I hope that that gives Canadians, you know, some answers about how this government is being run because. If it was, you know, if if you're asking me, it's it's not all that efficient. And and when can we expect to see that? Well, we'll see. We'll see what the uh, what the auditor said. But uh, we're calling in the auditors. There was an agreement on that, and uh, ministers don't get to investigate themselves for giving uh, at least a hundred million dollars to uh, to McKinsey in this case. Okay, Melissa Lansman, thanks so much for uh, telling us all about that. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, bye bye. And that's all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you could not get through, there's an awful lot to talk about this week, as there always is. And I will be here to take your calls and your comments about whatever is on your mind. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.